John chapter 16, verse 33, and Acts 14 and 22 talk about tribulation. Two different things about tribulation. Jesus says, uh, in me you might have peace, in John 16, 33, but in the world you shall have tribulation. That's a truth spoken by Jesus Christ. In the world you shall have tribulation. Why is that? Because he came to deliver us, he came to set us free, he came to save us, but if you read your Bible, the world didn't necessarily appreciate that. The devil doesn't appreciate that. And he is the principality and the prince of the airways, the Bible says. He has a certain amount of dominion on this earth. And he wasn't going to let all that happen without a fight. And he's still not letting all that happen without a fight. So if you truly love Jesus, and Jesus is a little adverse to the world and its systems, then it would naturally uh, reflect tribulation in your own life that you're going to have tribulation in this world. He said, they rejected me, they'll reject you. They hated me, they might hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So on one hand, he's saying, I'm going to give you peace that surpasses understanding. I'm going to be your source, your source of joy. I will work miracles. I will be with you low even until the ends of the earth. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. But in this world, you will have tribulation. So that's the truth that I hope more and more churches are, are teaching. Verse 22 of Acts 14, the Bible says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Listen to that, exhorting them to continue in the faith. How do we exhort people? How do we encourage people to continue in the faith? I've got a great idea. Let's tell them how much trouble they're going to have. <laughs> but that is what the Bible says. Here in verse number 22, exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. I would have much rather it said, and if, if I went to, a, I heard a lot of different um, uh, ministers or, or different churches, and I'm not calling any of them out, out by name. I'm just saying you probably all heard it. I would have thought it said, let's exhort to continue the faith that through so many blessings we'll enter into the kingdom of God. And that's, a, that's what I want it to say. That's okay. I like that message. It's just that that's not what the Bible said. So as much as I like it, uh, my, my worldview needs to come back to the foundational truth of God's word. And maybe if I understood how that through much tribulation we enter into the kingdom of God, maybe I wouldn't have so much trouble with it. Maybe the blessing is understanding the tribulation. So we're kind of coming at it from that angle. Today's message, although it's probably hard to tell at this point, is on hope. Um, hope is a word that has been abused, so abused lately, much abused for the last almost eight years due to a certain campaign that was run uh, with the promise of hope, 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 until you're blue in the face and it loses all meaning and it loses all value. And then we look at our current situation and it's hard to ascertain whether there's actually any hope for the way things are going. I'm not blaming one individual. It's not a political statement or political speech. Okay, it's a, uh, at least over 500 people are to blame that are part of that Beltway system. And I don't care if it's a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, it doesn't matter. It seems like the same thing happens over and over again. And that's all I wanna say about politics. But the hope has been abused and I think as Americans, it's lost a little bit of its value of a word, of a concept. And I think as Christians, we probably have always had a little bit of a misconcept about what, what this word means. So we're going to explore some more going into Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. Everybody say hope. hope. 
And we know, verse number 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God and to those that are called according to his purpose. We use this scripture a lot because it's such a great scripture, such an encouraging scripture. We know that all things work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. You know what all things means in Greek? All things. <laughs> that means bad things, good things, indifferent things, arbitrary things, amazing things, stressful things, relieving things, all things work to good. They're all coming around to, to, to some ending point, and that point is supposed to be good. Now, we say we're believers. We call ourselves Christians. We say we love Jesus Christ. We look into his word. We see a verse like number 28 of chapter 8 of the book of Romans, and we, we say it with fervor, and we share it with charisma that all things are going to work to good, but then we find ourselves surrounded by and in the midst of difficult situations, and it's like we forget. Or we, we get to see a glimpse of what our belief really looks like. Because life is hard, but he says he'll never put more on your shoulders than you can bear. But I know people who have a lot on their shoulders, and they've told me, Pastor, I'm not sure what that really means. Because I, I can't bear anymore. And I'm almost at my wit's end. And I want to remind them of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, but it's hard when somebody's going through a hard situation to just remind them of a scripture they might already know about. But we have to, that's why it's good to make these decisions before you get in the situation. You need to decide right now, before you're at your wit's end, if you believe that all things work to good. If you decide to believe that right now, then when the tribulation comes, you already are walking in the blessing of it doesn't matter, hell or high water, as they say, tribulation or deliverance, all things work to good. All things. That might be why he says, in all things give thanks. Not to give thanks for all things, but in the midst of all things. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. So what are some of these things that he's talking about? Because I would love for the book of Romans, the rest of the chapter of chapter 8, to define these things as mostly good things. Mostly good things work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. So let's travel on a little bit further down the scripture, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, everybody say tribulation. Now we already know that tribulation has been defined out of the mouth of Jesus Christ as something that you will encounter. So naturally it would follow, he's going to list off some other things that you will encounter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can any of those things separate you from the love of Christ? They can if you're not prepared, if you haven't already made that decision. I need to decide right now today. Everybody say hope. We're getting there, I promise. I need to make that decision today. Tribulation's going to come in my life. What am I going to do? I'm going to point to God 
And so far, that could go either way. That could be good or bad. You've got to decide after you lift that pointer finger up to the heavens, what's going to come out of your mouth. Are you going to thank him or are you going to blame him? Shall tribulation separate you from the love of Christ? It doesn't have to, but you need to decide right now that God is good, that all things work to good, that as the word of the Holy Spirit was earlier in the service, that Jesus is the answer. Distress, persecution, can it separate you? I hope not. Famine, can it separate you? I hope not. Now, you might, it might be hard to picture yourself crawling through a barren desert, thirsty and hungry, and giving thanks to God as your Savior, as your provider, as your King, as your best friend, as your Lord, as everything. But God is saying right now, listen, it doesn't matter what the tribulation looks like. If your concept of me is that I'm all-powerful, I'm everywhere at the same time, I'm a loving God, and therefore you should never be in need, then it doesn't matter what the tribulation looks like, it's going to separate you from me. What I'm trying to tell you right now is I am all-powerful. I am all loving. I am everywhere at the same time. And you shall have tribulation. Why? Why, if God is that way, shall we have tribulation? Why shall we have distress? Why, as believers, could we be found in famine or nakedness or at the end of a sword? If you haven't been able to answer that, it might separate you. Verse 36, as it is written, For thy sake are we blessed all day long. Oops, my fault. For thy sake are we killed all day long. God, that is so different from what we learn a lot of times. Why are we in distress and famine if God is so loving? And the answer is because God is so loving. It's for his sake that we are killed all the day long. If that's confusing, it's supposed to be. We're going to get to the, we're going to make it non-confusing later. It's okay to be confused for a minute. And we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Starting to make a little bit more sense. That was an amen. I heard it. <laughs> that girl is filled with the spirit. Verse 37, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now there's an encouraging scripture that we could dance a little jig about. I could get away with that in any Baptist church or Pentecostal church or Methodist church. I could say whatever. We are made more than conquerors. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Hey, amen. Hmm? Yeah, baby. More than conquerors. We love to be conquerors. We might not have thought about the fact that if we're going to be conquerors, we have to have something to conquer. And if we read a couple of verses before that, there are these tribulation things. There are these distresses. There is this famine. There is this nakedness. For thy sake are we killed all day long. Are we accounted as sheep for the slaughter? But through him, we are made more than conquerors. Amen. Amen. More than conquerors, but we have to conquer something. Through him that loved us, verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He said, in this world, you shall have tribulation, but fear not. 
for I have overcome the world. Faith is a fight. Faith is a battle. We're in the middle of a war. We're, we're standing firm on a real-life chessboard, but all of the pieces are armed. And we have to decide who we're going to let move us around that board. Are we going to go where the enemy says is the best place to move, or are we going to go where God says is the best place to move? Because they're in the middle of an intergalactic, interdimensional chess game. We are pawns on the board. The other pieces are well-armed, and it's more than just a game, but you understand what I'm saying. We'll have tribulation. We'll have peril. We'll have distress. Who are we going to follow? Who are we going to listen to? What I would have to assume kills God the most is when the one that distresses us, the one that wants to kill us, the one that likes to put us in peril, the one that likes to give us tribulation, the enemy of your soul, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, he's like the firefighter that starts the fire in the forest just so he can go put it out and be called the hero. He does it to us, and then we get mad at God, and then we go with him. We're like, well, you're supposed to protect me, and this is not supposed to be happening, so I am going to go sleep with the enemy. See what happens then. Let's go to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience works experience and experience works hope and hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. What shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? What shall separate us? That, yeah, say it louder. What shall separate us? Remember how God said this morning he wants his church back? Don't be afraid to be a Jesus freak. What shall separate us? Nothing, Nothing right? We're in this together. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. So I need your help. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. No thing. The love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts, which is given to us by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. That love of God will make us not ashamed. That love of God will make us not ashamed. That's a big statement. That's a big statement. Hope will make us not ashamed. That's a big statement because a lot of us are ashamed. A lot of us don't feel like we're good enough. A lot of us don't feel like we're worthy. A lot of us have been through too much. We've been through too much spiritual abuse. We've been through too much physical abuse. We've been through too much mental abuse. We've been through too much emotional abuse. And we don't know how to do anything other than cuddle up next to the abuser and say, please stop. Please. If I just do a little bit more of what you want, will you stop? And God's saying, get away, get away from that. Get away from that. It's separating you from the love of God, which is given to you by the Holy Ghost, which is shed abroad in your heart, which is given to you freely. Don't cuddle up next to the abuser. Separate yourself. 
You're low on hope because you're feeling ashamed. And you don't need to feel ashamed because you didn't do it to yourself. You're not invisible. You didn't do it to yourself. We all see you. People love you. If they're not talking to you and they're not hugging you, it's because they share your hurt. They share your pain. They feel as ashamed as you feel. They're as unworthy as you are. And as they want to walk up and give you a hug, but they're not sure how you're going to look at them while you're not sure how they're going to look at you. And God is saying, man, I really just want all of all of you, but I don't have enough of enough of you. Can I have more of more of you? And that's what we need from each other, from our fellowship, from the body of Christ. We're all lacking. We're puzzle pieces. We're a jigsaw puzzle. We're missing parts. And the rest of us have those parts. We're missing parts somewhere else. But if we all come together and work as the body of Christ, our hope can be renewed. And we don't have to feel ashamed. But instead, we'd rather stand in our big pulpits in our prideful and powerful leadership positions and preach to the choir, as we say, when really there is no choir because the choir is not perfect either. The choir is not righteous either. The choir is not standing up there going, I am so whole and I am so righteous and I am so worthy. The choir is also suffering. The choir is also hurting. So there is no choir to preach to and there's no real preacher preaching because we're not hearing the gospel. We're hearing about how to build this huge mega kingdom where we can all be blessed and fake it until we make it. Meanwhile, the word of God is saying you're low on hope and that's why you're feeling ashamed. And when you feel ashamed, you make things up. You're trying to, it's self-defeating. You can't just ignore it. It's not gonna go away because one day you're gonna look in the mirror and realize you've been fake for a long time and it's all gonna come crumbling down and it's gonna hurt more than it ever did. Or we can relinquish some of our power. We can relinquish some of our pride. We can be a little bit more real. And you can understand that I'm hurting and I'm suffering and you're hurting and you're suffering. And when we get past that and we accept that in this world that we will have tribulation, maybe we can start working on the hope that is in us. Let's continue to explain that. Hope makes not ashamed. We're going to go backwards because we serve a God who goes backwards. The Bible says, God says of himself in Isaiah, I'll have you not ignorant that I am a God that knows the end from the beginning. Everybody say backwards. We all know this. We've been through it a few times, but I'll reiterate. Everything's backwards in the Bible. You're rich when you're, you're exalted when you're, if you want to receive, you need to, everything's backwards. This doesn't work like things work in the, in the world. It doesn't seem to work right. He knows the end from the beginning. We know as human beings that history repeats itself. He said, there's no new thing under the sun. What has been shall be. That's scripture, Ecclesiastes. He's a God that worked, works backwards. His language is Hebrew. It reads from right to left instead of left to right. Everything that he does is backwards because he wants us to realize that the word of God is a mirror. And when you look into it, you see your spiritual self. But anything, anything you see in a mirror, it's backwards. The reflection is backwards. So let's work from the end towards the beginning and see what we can learn. We know that hope not, makes not a shame. Well, how do we get to hope? Well, it says right here, experience works hope. At the end of verse number four. So in order for our hope, to be resurrected, we need, to, we need some experience. We all know what experience is. I don't need to preach to you about experience, but there's one really good saying that helps define experience to me. And I'm probably going to mess it up because I just didn't write it down. Should have. Let me think about it for a second. <laughs> something like understanding or knowledge or something. Um, oh, I'm going to mess it up. Never mind. In a nutshell, what it's saying is uh, 
Oh yeah, it's uh, the ability to make good decisions comes through experience, but most of that comes through bad decisions, right? So experience is, is not always something great and wonderful. Experience is experience. We learn from our mistakes. If we don't make mistakes, we don't learn. Back to verse number four. How do we gain experience? Patience. Patience. Well, what works patience? Verse number three. Tribulation. So if you are separated or you feel like the love of God is separated from you, if you feel like your hope is lacking, it's because your experience is lacking. And if your experience is lacking, it's because your patience is lacking. And let me help you with patience real quick. Patience is not measured on a time scale. The children of Israel waited around the wilderness for 40 years for something that should have taken them three to seven days. Were they patient? They weren't patient. You can wait for something for 40 years and never stop being anxious. Never learn your lesson. Walk around the same mountain for 40 years. There was no patience involved. Patience has less to do with how long you wait and has more to do with what you do while you wait. What you say while you're waiting, what you're thinking while you're waiting, where your heart is while you're waiting. You don't have to wait for very long, but sometimes you do because you haven't learned how to be patient yet. Why aren't we patient? Because we haven't been taught in the church that we have to go through tribulation. That Jesus said you shall have tribulation. That he encourages us in our faith that through tribulation we'll enter into the kingdom of God. That's what we learned in Acts 14, 22. We get there through tribulation. So what works patience is tribulation. How many of you have ever been through a hard time while you've been a Christian? How many of you are going through a hard time right now as a Christian? How many of you need help? How many of you have people in your lives that are telling you, well, if you would just get this straight or you would just do that, if you would do uh, X, Y, and Z, um, if you get on my wife's Facebook, she posted an article where she was quoted in just a little while back. She says it really well. If you'll just do X, Y, and Z, then everything will be fixed and everything will be okay. That you maybe you're not doing it right. Maybe your faith is lacking. Maybe this, maybe that, maybe the other thing. And in reality, God is saying your patience never gets worked without tribulation. You are not necessarily doing something wrong. I can guarantee you that you are, and I am as well, but you understand what I'm saying? It's not God punishing you because you're going five miles an hour over the speed limit. It's God working your patience through the tribulation that's already in your life. In other words, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and there's a blind man sitting there on the sidewalk, and the disciples ask him, true story, it's in your Bible, uh, why is this man blind? Is it his parents' sin? Or is it his sin? Or is it something that we don't understand? And Jesus says, no, he's not blind because of his parents' sin. And he's not blind because of his sin. He's blind for God's glory. And they say, that's all I can, they didn't say anything, so I just have to make facial expressions. <laughs> what? Why, why is that God's glory? Because Jesus is about to walk up to him and heal him. He's sick so I can make him better. He's lacking so I can make him whole. He's hurting so I can heal him. He's less than 
so I can make him more than. I'm the missing part of the equation, and I don't want anybody figuring out how to get it right without me. Because without me, as right as they seem to have it, they won't be with me on the other side. So it's not about how whole can you be here, it's about can you make it to over there. And if order to, in order to make it over there and live with him forever, you are the type of person or your heart is in the place where you're gonna have to go through tribulation after tribulation after tribulation. Well, I wanna tell you a secret. You walked up to an altar one day or you sat down in your car or you sat down on your couch or you went into your prayer closet and you said, Father, I give my life over to you. And right then at that moment, he got full authority and he knew exactly what it was gonna take for you to cry out to him, for you to follow him forever. That guy on the sidewalk, he needed to be blind for a little while so that he could rejoice in the one that gave him his sight. We're never going to be perfect on this side of heaven. So embrace your frailty because in that God can be glorified. There's so many of us that are going through things right now. When is God going to clear this up? It's not about him clearing it up. He's asking you a question. When are you going to learn what you're supposed to learn? Don't ever let a good crisis go by. Now, I'm saying this from a spiritual standpoint. Somebody got reamed in that, in the political world for saying that. I don't necessarily believe that in the political world. In the spiritual world, never let a good crisis go by without learning a lesson, what God has to teach you. Jacob and Caleb alone in 40 years learned the lesson. And so they got to cross over the Jordan. They got to walk into the promised land. Everybody else did not. Same amount of time, totally different experience. Let's read it forward one more time. Starting in verse 1. For being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. By whom also we have access by faith into his grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation works patience, patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope makes not ashamed. Everybody say, I'm not ashamed. Let hope rise up inside of you because of the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You know what the chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11, you know what it starts out saying? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things that are not seen. You know what happens in that definition? You know what's about to happen to you? That maybe you've seen it or maybe you haven't? Faith is something completely different than probably a lot of us have thought. And what we thought was faith is actually hope. And faith is so much more than what we've given it credit for. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know what that makes hope? And you can look it up in the Greek. Elpis, I think, is how you say it in Greek. Hope is the earnest expectation of things to come. And a lot of us thought that's what faith was. But that's not what faith was. Faith is the substance of the things that you've earnestly hoped for. Faith is the substance of hope. Substance means foundation. It means at the bottom. It means something real and rigid. It means we hope in something that we cannot see. We expect things that haven't yet happened. Once they happen, once they are fulfilled, once they manifest, that we get to have faith in. That shows our faith. 
This is the product of your faith, but faith is the substance. Everybody say real, real. tangible of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is what you formerly would call your faith. It is your hope in God that makes you not ashamed. But you don't have that earnest expectation if your patience didn't give you experience and your tribulation wasn't walked through with patience. Instead, you have tribulation with no patience, you blame God. You have tribulation with a bad experience because of lack of patience and you blame God. That experience doesn't give you hope, but it gives you something other than and then we see people fall away. We see people walk away. Study Romans chapter 5 on your own. I want you to, to really get that. I'm going to go back to one other part of Acts 22, and then we're going to uh, Acts 14. Then we're going to sum it up, and we'll be done this morning. So our worship team can go ahead and make their way up here. Um. I'm sorry, we're being uh, John 16, verse 33, our very first foundational scripture. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. By the way, the series is Faith, Hope, and Love, so we're going we're gonna to go a little bit further on what faith means next week. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Everybody say peace. But in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The difference that I want to show you here in this scripture about tribulation, which remember ends in our hope, is that he didn't call for us to have tribulation among one another. He said we're going to have tribulation in the world, but in him, in his body, we shall have peace. In his body, we shall have peace. I want to explain to you a little bit more about what that means. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, everybody say brothers. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Everybody say gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together, that is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Remember, we're encouraging to stay in faith through tribulation, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're supposed to encourage, we're supposed to be gentle. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is defining the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Everybody say hope. hope. Ephesians 4, 1 through 32, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, pay attention to the words that are used here, with all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is but one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is the ESV. I'm sorry if it's King James up there. It's the ESV I was reading there. Here in Ephesians verse 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through, I'm not sure. I think I got written down wrong. There's a lot going on. Walk in the manner worthy of the calling that you were called to. Walk in humility and gentleness, which we've seen is how we should treat one another. Walk with patience, which bears out hope. Bearing one another in love, which is connected with hope, faith, hope, and love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He said, in me you'll have peace and the world will have tribulation. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope, one hope of your calling. Faith, hope, and love. 
There's two ways is what I'm trying to get at that hope is built up. One is in the world through tribulation, God will use that. Remember how we said earlier, if you're going to be more than a conqueror, you have to conquer something. Well, when you conquer that thing, that builds hope up inside of you. But you've got to be willing to let God walk you through those tribulations and those trying times. If you stick with him, he says he promises he'll stick with you. And when you come out on the right side of it at the end, you'll have a testimony and you'll have more hope than you had going in. You walk a little bit further and you'll, you'll stumble right into the next tribulation. And now you have experience to lean on and say, I know God's going to get me through this because God just got me through that. He didn't bring me this far just to let me down now. That's when we get a little bit more charismatic and we speak a little bit more encouraging and we say we serve a God that we know can. And then we walk right in that tribulation and we say, watch this. And God brings us through that. And we might bear a little bit of scars. We might have a little bit of a limp when we come out of it. But God brought us through and he's not trying to bring our flesh and blood to heaven. He's trying to bring our spirit and our soul. He's got a glorified body for you on the other side. So it's okay if you limp in, just get in. And then we walk right into the next tribulation. And, but something happens along the way. Somewhere along the way, our flesh gets involved and we start wondering and we start questioning, is he really going to deliver me this time? Can he really bring me through this? And he's saying, look, I put it in my word. If you'll just fall back on that experience that you've already had, remember the patience that you formerly walked with. Remember the tribulation that I already brought you through. You don't need to be ashamed that you're having problems because I've built up hope inside of you and that hope will bring you through. It is the love of God shed abroad in your heart given to you by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. So close your eyes if you have to. Duck your head if you have to. But get ready to run. Hit that, hit that door and run, baby, run. Don't look back. He's on the other side. He's actually in there in the fight with you. Don't lose that hope. It took you all that trouble to build it up. Don't lose it. That's one way. The second way should be inside the body of Christ. Where we should be treating each other with, with humility, gentleness, meekness, patience. I posted a post on Facebook this week. It just started out saying, question everything. Question everything. God gave you the ability to question for a reason. All the great rabbis and Hebrew sages said that the more experience they got, the better teachers they became. They learned how to teach more with questions than answers. So they could pose a question in people's mind and allow them to find the answer between them and God. And when they found that answer, it meant more to them than when they were just given that answer. You've all heard the expression, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach him how to fish. Hey, that's kind of the thing. So I see a, a bad, ultimately very damaging pattern evolving in the body of Christ, where the leadership of the body is gaining more and more power and more and more control. There's a separation, a gulf that is fixed that is getting bigger and bigger between the leadership and the congregation. Pastors can't be approached. Leaders can't be questioned. Theology can't be brought in under the, under the light of the Bible or anything else because you must submit fully to the leadership that is above you using one scripture out of context. My post was simply saying, if you cannot question your leadership or your questions can't be answered, you might have found yourself in, a, in, a, in the wrong place. That's an elitist society. And when you involve religion, it's a cultish society where one man or one woman or one group is in charge and everybody else needs to sit down, shut up and listen. 
My theology has to become your theology. My thoughts are your thoughts. Is the, there's scripture about that, but it's supposed to be God's thoughts. It's crazy. People signing off on other people's interpretations and saying, I promise for the rest of my life to say nothing but, and I'll give you all of this. And what happens eventually is you can get a whole group of people to stand out next to somebody's grave as they're being buried with signs about how God hates them. Or you can lace your Kool-Aid and everybody will drink it because you're the leader and they're not allowed to question. Now, people aren't quite that stupid anymore. So instead of serving them up cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, we serve them up poisonous renditions of out-of-context scriptures that allow each other to become abusers of one another because now nobody's good enough. Their theology is not good enough. They misunderstood a multisyllabic term. They don't know how to implement it into their own life, and that's why they're having trouble. And if they could just be as godly as the leadership and everybody that has power and authority above them, their life would work out the same way the leadership's life is working out. The problem is when you take away the curtain and you see the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz isn't doing so well. He's got a lot of problems himself. He's just pulling strings and making you think he's a little bit bigger than he is. In the meantime, he gets the accolades, he gets the control, he gets the glory, not thinking about all the people that are out there still hurting or getting hurt even worse. Saw a quote in that article. We want so desperately to be like Christ. We want so desperately to be like Christ. Don't you want to be like Christ? Amen. I want to be like Christ. But how often are we reminded that our great physician has scars? In his hands, in his feet, in his side, on his head. Too frequently we become the ones with blood on our hands. The man of sorrows is familiar with suffering, knows what it is to be forsaken and abused. Jesus was killed by oppressive religious and political authorities. That's the truth of the matter. He taught his followers to set aside power and weep with those who weep. Paul said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. The article was on how the church likes to shoot its wounded. Take them out back behind the shed, put them out of their misery or the rest of the congregation catches on. It's a little bit messier to help people all the way out of their situation. It's also worth it. It's also what Jesus did. It's hard to build a mega church that way because you can't help 10,000 people all the way out of their situation unless you have the most excellent leadership staff ever. Maybe, and I don't work inside those churches, so God forgive me. If I'm not saying that they're not doing a good job. I'm just trying to make a point. If we were less concerned, I think, about the masses and more concerned with the individual, then eventually we would amass a group of individuals who are truly delivered. As Christians, we like to talk about cultivating a radical, dangerous faith that sets the world ablaze. But the author asks, are we getting ahead of ourselves? What if the most radical thing we could do was to create safe communities? Remember Jesus? And the man that was possessed, the Gadarean, who was running around the graveyard, and when he finally delivered the man, he'd been running around full of a legion of demons forever. People came out there and chained him up. They weren't afraid, but he, he broke the chains. They tried fetters, and he broke the fetters. They tried everything they could. They weren't really scared of the guy. He was just a local nut job. Then when Jesus cast all the demons out, the Bible says, when they saw him sitting there safe and sound and of a sound mind, then they got scared. 
then they didn't understand. So maybe the most radical, scariest thing we can do is treat each other gently and kindly, lift each other up, forgive each other for our faults, not shoot our wounded, bandage them instead. It might get a little messy, but I really think it'd be worth it. What if we preach radical hospitality and radical humility, allowing the messy, uncomfortable, sorry, work of healing to play out in our midst? What if among us, the last really were first? What if Christians actively subverted the power structures that favor some perspectives and people over others? What if the church harbored and honored those who are hurting, doubting, struggling, or oppressed over the most frequently seated at the head of our tables? What if we really didn't respect persons? Maybe hope could be shed abroad in the hearts of many again. Maybe everybody wouldn't be trying to figure out if they're as good as the other person. Maybe we'd all figure out that we're hurting and a little bit empty and a little bit lacking, but this is truly a house of healing. Not to lose that hope. We're going to re- actually close and end with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. God's not interested in the wisest, strongest, most well-spoken prettiest, best reputation being called to the forefront of every group of people. He said, I'll use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I'll use the base things of the world to set those things that are as though they're not. What if we valued those things? What if we valued the base things? It'd be weird. It'd be almost like somebody could go through something inside of a church as terrible as a divorce and not be excommunicated. Right in the middle of their worst pain. It'd be like somebody in the church we could find out has been had an addiction to pills for the past two years and we don't kick them out. We try to help them instead. It'd be like every couple in the church could reveal how they're having issues if they're having issues at home with one another and how they're not sure how they're, if they're going to make it. And instead of telling them that if you want to be like Christ, you'll stay together no matter what, we could let down our guard a little bit. I'm having problems too. Let's get out the word of God. Let's break this bread together. Let's get, let's get us together with your wife and my wife, and let's talk about our problems. And let's see if there's a way to heal it. Let's see if there's a way to fix it. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't think he's going to kick you out of your church, his church for having problems. Whatever the worst of it is, what if we find out one of our deacons has a kid that went crazy at college and is just off the reservation? We don't have any deacons here, so it couldn't happen. But let's just say at a church that has deacons. Would we have to strip him of his title? Or could we try to help his kid out? And then sit down and talk to him and say, brother, do you feel like this is a good time for you to be bogged down with all this deaconship stuff? Maybe you should go take care of your family. This position will be here when you get back. 
if it's not working out, right? You know what I mean? Or we just take them out to the woodshed and say, hey, I got to show you something. And before they turn around, shotgun of grace. We don't do wounded here. We're Christians. Everything's good. Faith, hope, and love. In this world, you shall have tribulation. Hopefully, inside the body of Christ, you can find peace. Either way, God is your great hope, and Jesus is your great answer. Stand with us this morning. Let's worship.